Good evening, everyone. If you'll take your seats, we're going to start. We're, we're uh, starting a bit late, but we're still waiting for one of our panelists, and, uh, we're, but we decided to go ahead and, and uh, he'll join us when he gets here. Uh, I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs, and um, we're pleased to see you all here tonight. Um, this is, a, I think, many of you who, who come here regularly know that we, we do a lot of author programs here, author readings and book signings, and this is a little bit different. Um, but uh, one, of our, one of the Pratt Library board members, Alex Koff, is also on the board of Jay Pigo, and several months ago he said, you know, I think it would be good if the two organizations got together and um, presented an information ses session session about Ebola, and we decided that we'd take a little bit different approach and talk about um, beyond the headlines, beyond what you read and, and hear in the media. So that's what we're going to do tonight, and well, there will be plenty of time for you to ask questions. We're going to have um, a PowerPoint as well. And here to introduce the, uh, the panelists is uh, Anne Lalordo, who is the Director of Com Communications for Jay Pigo. And I want to say thank you to all of the Jay Pigo staff who, who helped us uh, put this program together, Pascal and, and all of your staff. Thank you very much. Thank you, Judy. Hi, everybody. Thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Anne Lalordo. I'm the Director of Communications at Chipaygo. Um, Chipaygo is an international health nonprofit. We've been in business for 40 years. We're an affiliate of Johns Hopkins University, one of the secret gems of the university. Uh, most of our work, all of our work, is overseas. Um, although our headquarters is down in Fells Point. And we really welcome the opportunity to be able to talk to you about the really important and uh, critical work we're doing now and have been uh, with regards to uh, Ebola. We have offices and have had um, staff in uh, two out of the three countries um, for quite some time, for over a decade, both in Liberia and in Guinea. So we're speaking... Uh, with boots on the ground, and um, I hope that you'll benefit from hearing from our folks in that from that regard. So, I if the two panelists are my colleagues, would come up and s sit down, uh, and I'll introduce them. At the far end is uh, Dr. Chandrakant Ruparelia. Um, he is our, one of our senior technical advisors at Japago, one of our infection prevention and control experts. And he's worked for us um, since um, he got his MPH at Hopkins in 2001. He's all over the globe for us, helping to build uh, a competent and skilled workforce in the countries that we, where we work. Um, and he's going to be talking to you tonight, giving you sort of the big picture, the 30,000-foot view of Ebola across the three countries where the outbreak is now. And then... Um, my second colleague here is Khadija Nathani, who is one of our senior program officers, who works um, on our maternal health team for the, one of our really big projects, one of our new projects, although it's a follow-on to another one, the uh, Maternal and Child Survival Project, which is the U.S. government's biggest flagship maternal and child health program. 
and Khadija has been on the ground, spent three weeks in Liberia most recently. So we'll be able to talk to you from what she saw up close and personal. And our, our last speaker who will be here, who's just running late, is um, Mars Kaffa, who is the vice chair of the Maryland and Liberia Sister City State Relations Group. We probably didn't even know that existed, but there really are a lot of Liberians, expat Liberians that live, who live in Maryland. Um, he's an environmental engineer uh, working for the D.C. government, and he's also um, uh, executive director of the Africa Environmental Watch, which is basically a U.S.-based US environmental organization that's real, his main focus is in Liberia. And so, again, he's going to come at this from more of a hands-on um, look at the things that need to happen in Liberia from uh, an environmental perspective. Um, you know, we, when we were putting this program together, we were looking at trying to think about how we could talk about um, Ebola and specifically in Liberia and we thought, given our expertise and Mr. Kaufa's interest and the Marylanders who are uh, native Liberians, we could try and talk about this beyond the headlines. But because we've had, since August, a lot of coverage about Ebola uh, for all the obvious reasons. Um, so I just thought today I'd look up sort of what's the most recent headlines. Uh, the outbreak is still making headlines, but it's not on the front page as much, right? So the Baltimore Sun today was Ebola vaccine trial set to begin in Rockville. The Guardian in London was actually uh, reporting on the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control Director, confident that Ebola cases in West Africa can be reduced to zero. Um, the LA Times headline was, Liberia's epi Ebola epidemic could be eliminated by June, researchers say. And our, the Washington Post in our backyard, um, Sierra Leone president predicts zero Ebola cases by March's end. But let's get beyond those a little bit. Here's some of the headlines I got today uh, from being on um, our weekly Ebola call. Uh, and this is specific to Liberia. The government of Liberia is starting a program called Roads to Health, where they're going to try and uh, repair and improve the roads in the country so that people can have easy access to getting to health care, something we probably don't think about here. But many of the, many of the countries where we work, uh, women and families are walking to health facilities. They're not picking up the phone and calling 911 to get them there. Um, Another headline that was important for us, uh, in Liberia, the schools are reopening February 1st. So schools have been closed since the outbreak started last year. You can imagine what the impact that is like on not only individuals, not only on school children, but on the next generation of Liberians as they're moving forward. And the third headline, which is really critical to us as well, is that um, the government of Liberia was putting into place and getting ready to develop a plan to try and replace the number of health workers who have died during the Ebola outbreak. Um, critical, critical element here, because uh, health workers really took a big brunt of this disease and this uh, outbreak. And um, 
again, in the countries where we work, uh, the frontline health workers are predominantly nurses and midwives who are caring for patients, and when, and they already have sort of a depleted health um, staffing ratio compared to what we have here in the United States. So the fact that the government is already thinking about trying to figure out how they're going to rebuild that workforce um, is critical for uh, the health and welfare of Liberians. So I'd like to have uh, Dr. Ruparelia, known in, at Chipago as Rup, start us off, and he's going to do a short PowerPoint to sort of just let's let's orient ourselves and give us give us a little bit of an overview on um, where we started and where where we've come so far. Thank you. We'll have we'll have plenty of time for questions, so I'd like to have them sort of talk through their, their presentations a bit, and then we'll open it up for questions. Good evening, friends, and uh, Ann, thank you so much for you know, that very you know, lavish uh, introduction. Basically, I'm a, I'm a family physician from India that you can find anywhere in any clinics here take care of all the public health issues and the disease related to that all my life. Uh, so today is all about Ebola. You know, the discussion about Ebola started like this somewhere in December, you know, 13, and then started January, March. It started a little bit getting active, and then by the time we reached June, everyone was running, and by August, everyone was breathless running, to make sure that uh, 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 a number of cases that we have been looking in uh, West African countries that start coming down, and uh, uh, as, the, as the report says, that somewhere they are here now going steady. Some are noticing some decrease, and some say that it increases here and decreases there. So, long way to go. You know, June 15. That's what people are sort of aiming for. Uh, and then, uh, as Ann mentioned, it could be March. So let's look at the things and say, you know, what after we see the last case? And just to, before I begin my presentation, you know, it needs, a country need to maintain zero case status for 42 days when the technical experts would confirm that there is no case and that country would then be declared free of Ebola. So we are... We are talking about a zero case, 42 days, and say, what after Ebola? Okay, so uh, I'm going to present some information, which many of you have seen on the net, but that would help us sort of establish a context. So back in 1976, in a, in a DRC, Democratic Republic of Congo, on, a, on, on river Ebola, a school teacher got a disease, and then the team of scientists... Uh, from everywhere, went out there, and they said, what, would be the, what should be the name of this virus? And they said, let's call it Ebola. So we started calling it Ebola back in 1976. Since then, if you see into the sub-Saharan Africa, which you are looking on, uh, uh, on the... On and these, these, are the, these are the countries where... Most of the cases happened, most of the epidemic outbreaks happened, did not kill many people the way it is doing now. And then all of a sudden, 
this virus, Ebola virus, moved to West Africa, and then West Africa is experiencing the worst epidemic outbreak in the history, uh, as if you look at the past uh, outbreaks. And so, overall, more than 20 outbreaks have been registered so far in various parts from Sudan, South Sudan, Uganda, and then it kept on moving, and now it's in West Africa, Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. So if you look at this few facts about Ebola, uh, it takes 2 to 21 days after one is exposed or after the bug would enter one's body. And on an average 10 days, that person would start feeling sick uh, if the virus was successful in infecting the person. Uh, in most cases, the infection occurs by direct contact with blood and other fluids of a person who is sick with Ebola when it comes in contact with a person's skin which is broken or the mucous membrane uh, the, the person may end up getting the disease. It does not spread by air or water at many, as many people thought so. A lot, lot of discussion happened initially, but now we say we know that our current understanding is that this disease does not spread by air or water. And, uh, and, 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 and virus is found, this bug is found in every you know, blood and a lot of other body fluids, including sweat, uh, when it comes to the presence in, you know, in the body. Uh, fruit bats are um, known to be you know, the natural sort of reservoir of these bugs. Uh, very popular in many tribes in Africa. They catch and they, they eat the bats. So that's how it is, you know, it is, it is, it is it's thought that it would enter from bats into the animals and from animals into the, into the human beings and then starts human to human sort of spread of the disease. Uh, as, as Anne mentioned, the, the trials for the vaccine has just started uh, again. Uh, it started once and then it was stopped and it started again, but we are still years away from the, from the time when the vaccine would be available. And uh, there is no specific treatment, only uh, management of uh, signs and symptoms like fever, you manage fever, diarrhea, you manage diarrhea, but there is no specific shot that you give and the person gets cured. Right? And uh, up to 60% up to of the people who become sick, they die. Up to, it used to be in 1976, it used to be up to 90%, but now it's 60%. And maybe in future it would be even less than that because we learn a lot in terms of how to manage these cases. Mm. So if we look at how can we prevent this disease, the most important thing is to find out sick people, actively look for them, ask them questions, see if they have signs and symptoms, then doubt. Once you doubt, you confirm. Right? And, then, and then once we know that this person is confirmed, we need to isolate them, put them into separate room. Okay? And then... Also look into, and ask, look into and ask question that if I am sick, how many people did I come in, in contact with? And then go out, find them out and monitor them for 21 days. 
to make sure that they don't develop signs and symptoms or if they develop any signs and symptoms they become sick you isolate them and manage them um, another thing that you know the healthcare workers as again an mentioned that countries are thinking in terms of how to you know how to train more people because they lost a lot of healthcare workers during this epidemic and we will we will get into that in a moment but infection prevention is a main thing that healthcare workers should be practicing right and uh, and it says that one of the most important way to prevent infection among healthcare workers is hand washing right so hand washing and then comes next putting on those personal protective equipment you must have seen people looking like you know astronauts many pictures like that with yellow and white and goggles and fully covered looking bit scary sometimes right but they are the ones who are really getting ready to serve the patients and they wear all those personal protective equipments one need to thinks in terms of how to manage the waste that comes out so there is lot in terms of infection prevention we talked about the management and another reason why this disease is spreading in the community is the funeral practices or the cultural practices around the funeral touching the body washing the body now this patient is you know at the at, uh, immediately after death the patient remain very highly very highly infectious and then touching that body with bare hands and doing all the other rituals really exposes large number of relatives and community people you know i remember in mali when the case first case occurred in an imam when he passed away there were about 3 to 400 people who went and did the last ritual and they all had to be followed for 21 days they all had to be followed for 21 days and uh, and that's how they they brought it under control right so it's a it's a, it's a funeral practices and so the lesson learned is you know avoid direct contact with anyone who is suspected of having a disease and then avoid the direct contact with dead animals because they are the one from which it came into the human being okay uh i i really look at these numbers and then what i learned in past 6 months 7 months is that these numbers are growing and increasing every day right it is a little more in guinea less in you know sierra leone or more in sierra leone less in liberia but so far more than 20000 people got the disease and more than 8500 have died and of those who died look at the healthcare workers in guinea 296 got sick 221 died and now now looks a small number but let me tell you that there is less than half doctor or or there is one doctor per population of 22000 people in all these three countries Okay. whereas in the africa as a region you will find 11 so now you can see the difference right now you can see the difference so we have lost a significant proportion of healthcare professionals in these countries okay and then uh, i i started looking you know i started reading about all these countries what happened to them where were they and i found these The, these are the things very common between all these countries uh, namely liberia guinea and sierra leone they are very poor countries so poverty is the is the biggest issue then uh, 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 
you know, there are people very young. It's a young population. Uh, it's mostly rural population. You know, there is a relatively low prevalence of HIV AIDS as compared to Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, uh, on the and, and South Africa on the on the other side. You know, the governments are weak in terms of their administrative capacity. Uh, you know, infrastructure by and large is poor, and health system is very, very fragile. You know, when I visited Liberia before Ebola happened, you know, I went to a healthcare facility just to find that they were using the equipment and instrument which I saw in the in the in the in the storerooms of some of the health facilities in my country. So you can imagine that it's, it's they are really f their, their health system is very weak, fragile, and then there is a severe shortage of healthcare worker, as I mentioned. So these are the things you know, in which the this outbreak occurred in in the in the West African countries. So what's the impact of Ebola? Number of patients dying. That's what we keep on looking at. But how has it affected you know, those other than who got sick, got cured, or, or died? At individual level, after recovery, it's really it needs extra efforts to integrate these people within their community. It's, it's, it's really the, 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 the discrimination is beyond at least my imagination. So it's a huge problem. People are weak. They need to sustain themselves, their family members. So these are the individual level that gets into at the family level. You know, uh, one parent died, so it all of a sudden became a single parent. I was watching a video on 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 Ebola and this uh, and this and this. Uh, uh, funeral safe and dignified burial teams they were giving interview in terms of how many members of their family they lost and it's about like two four five that's the number which uh, individuals were mentioning as they were speaking before the camera uh, and then the and then and that at community level you know it's all about health education food safety overall safety you know other resources they need Everything is slowly, you know, that got out of control. They could not really now have enough of those that they needed. You know, uh, thank God the schools are opening. But then uh, 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 the next question is, when will they become fully functional, right? So, so opening is one thing and becoming fully functional is, is a second thing. So we'll have to see when, uh, what happens. Uh, there, is a, there is a severe reduction in economic growth rate. A year ago, we used to say Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea are making really good progress because their economy is growing at the rate of 6% every year. That's a very good rate. Sierra Leone was even higher. But believe me, during 15, during 2015, you know, uh, uh, Liberia is going to have a little bit good growth, but Sierra Leone and Guinea are going to be losing their money. Right? It's a minus 2 is going to be so there will be losing their wealth by 2% at the end of 15 and uh, overall loss in terms of everything put together could be up to 32 billion highest and 3.6 billion is the lowest figure so it's a huge impact uh, everywhere in every sector and then 
um, rather than talking about what could be done in this individual country, I know Khatija would talk about uh, more about Liberia-specific issues, but uh, globally, the interest, the stakeholders, the donors, I have started discussing about what after Ebola. And what I have learned from what's happening, they have already started discussing with the countries in terms of how should we go about you know addressing all the all the all the issues and then the biggest one is you know to me it's not bringing those 300 healthcare workers who we lost but making sure how we protect those who are already existing and make sure that we provide them with enough skills you know enough uh, supplies and enough uh, support so that they continue to protect themselves uh, now and forever, right? And so, uh, so, so these are some of the things. And of course, uh, every day I read that uh, they need a billion dollar to contain the epidemic. We still have 540. Now we have reached 580. So the, 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 the aid and the support is coming. But now we will have to move from emergency mode to the development mode. Know, to development mode and then uh, and then develop a plan that would work for the country which country owns which country wants to address and then just go and support them uh, and, 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 and then uh, we need to really restore health, education, agriculture, industry and many other key sectors so there, will, there is going to be a tremendous need to go out there and support them in a way that they need support and the support that would really make a difference. And that's what I see as should be happening post-Ebola and, 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 uh, and the new life in those countries. So thank you so very much. Thank you. Rup, thanks very much for that overview. Um, you know, uh, so much of the media attention has been on individual cases of people who have been sick, how the countries have been coping with this healthcare crisis, but um, I think as Roop's sort of uh, discussion uh, shows you, you know, once we get to that level where those cases are coming down and we get to zero, it's not over. It may be over for, for us as outsiders, but for the country them, countries themselves, it's really just the beginning of a very long hard climb. Um, uh, and I think Khadija being on the ground there uh, can talk to you about how people in country uh, were sort of responding daily and sort of what they're thinking about um, for the future. So Khadija. I mean, I think you can sit there okay. if you feel more comfortable. Yeah, sure. Yes. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. Okay, so first I'll start out by saying, you know, I was recently in Liberia, and as you heard Root mention, two to 21 days for the virus to sort of take hold in your system. So I'm on day 25, so nobody needs to worry. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, in, you know, Liberia is kind of at an interesting point right now because, you know, the cases are really coming down. In August, September, when it was the peak, you were looking at about 50 cases a day, new cases of Ebola. Now we're down to about two or three 
Um, so we're really looking at a point of transition into you know, what's happening next as we come down to zero. And Ebola is really a disease where you have to come down to zero. You, know, you can't let it lay low, but you also have to look at um, you know, the health system beyond what's being done for Ebola. And looking at Liberia, you know, a country that did have a weak health system prior to Ebola, when Ebola hit, all resources were basically diverted to you know, to support the response to Ebola. So, you know, I arrived at the end of November, and every time you heard an ambulance, it was like, oh, there's another Ebola case. And then I remember asking the question, well, what if you have something that's non-Ebola related? And they said, well, there's no, you know, there's no ambulance. It's, there's, you know, there's, there's almost nothing. You know, you can go to a health center, and if you're, like, you know, as long as you don't have a fever, you can get referred to an Ebola treatment center. You know, you'll, you know, you may get treatment, but there was a lot of, you know, a lot of the resources had been diverted for Ebola. So now we're really looking at um, supporting the health system, rebuilding it better than it was before. So if there is another outbreak like this, you know, we can deal with that, but also deal with regular health issues because. Liberia, I mean, malaria is one of the big diseases in Liberia. And basically during Ebola, nobody was being tested for malaria because there was, um, because there was worry about confusing it because it has similar symptoms. So they didn't want to confuse someone by diagnosing them with malaria when they actually had Ebola, um, and so, which was much more infectious. So, they, so there is a lot of... There's a lot of work that needs to be done. In December, when I was there, about over 50% of the health facilities had closed. So now there's a big move from the government to reopen, start reopening health facilities. They're partnering with a lot of the international organizations um, to work side by side with the government in the different counties of Liberia to build their capacity to reopen health centers. And there's really, you know, a lot of things need to be done in terms of rebuilding trust. You know, people were, um, you know, you, Rube talked about the health workers, the number of health workers that were infected with Ebola, who died from Ebola, so they were afraid to go to work. You know, so you have to rebuild trust in the health workers' training so that they know how to deal with these infectious diseases, and then trust in the people that if they go to a health facility, that they, you know, that they will be receive appropriate treatment. They won't be. There's a triage area, so if people do have infectious diseases, they they're kept separately, so people are not at risk of being infected um, if they are going for other routine uh, routine issues. And one of the major one of the major, I guess, groups um, that was really neglected during this period was pregnant women. And this is, you know, this is an area for Japigo that Japigo really focuses on is, you know, the time of pregnancy. And in the Ebola treatment centers, there was no, um, there was no space for, you know, to deliver babies. There were no midwives. So if a woman um, was in an Ebola treatment center, she, you know, basically had no option or was referred, you know, would keep getting referred. And many women, many pregnant women died because they just couldn't get treated. And, you know, I don't know how many people in this room have had a baby, but it's messy. Labor is a messy thing, and people are afraid because, you know, as Root mentioned, you know, it's passed through fluids, you know, and there's a lot of fluids going on when you're, when you're giving birth, and people were just, there's a lot, there was a lot of fear um, around this. And, you know, one of the things that I learned when I was there is that if, you, if a pregnant woman went to, a treat, to an Ebola treatment center, so if she had a fever, was referred to an Ebola treatment center, they didn't, there was not, no question even on the form asking 
if a woman was pregnant. So this was something that people were really fighting for to get this information. And I just read in the news that Sierra Leone is opening a um, treatment center for pregnant women, which is a huge step forward um, to be able to treat, um, to treat women who are pregnant and you know, deal with that because they were very sort of underrepresented um, and overlooked group during this crisis. I'm, yeah, I'm going <laughs> to ask uh, just a qu uh, just let yeah. me just ask a quick follow up mm -hmm. question there. Um, Khadija, uh, uh, most women in Liberia, if you recall, do or do not usually give birth in a health facility. Yeah, so uh, before Ebola, about 50% of women gave birth in a health facility. Um, you know, this, was, this is the um, government statistic that we have, but it probably was higher or lower depending um, on the county, and it basically dropped is almost zero during the Ebola crisis. So a lot of them, so there was a big step backwards in terms of women going to more traditional methods of um, giving birth at home and not really having the resources or the necessary things to protect themselves during childbirth. Yeah. Um, I, our, our last panelist <laughs> is here. I'm, I'm, I'm happy you found us, you. Morris. Um, yes, okay, so you're here with us now. This is good, and this is right at, at a good opportunity because uh, as an environmentalist and an environmental engineer, I know from our conversations on the phone, you were talking about um, issues that you know from uh, your work and from your conversations within Liberia that need to be addressed moving forward. Uh, or, And I was wondering if you would speak to a little bit of that and share with uh, our audience your perspective on, um, you know, the Ebola situation from uh, a native Liberian and also from your personal work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, audience. I apologize that I have to be a little bit late. I got GPS let me down. <laughs> but um, I'm so excited to be here. I am a Liberian originally, and I've been here now for over 28 years. I went to school two hours from from undergraduate, you know, up to uh, my terminal degree level. I have traveled to Liberia and continue to do so since 2003. I was, I was in Ghana at a peace conference after Charles Taylor was captured. And I was part of the peace conference representing the Liberian uh, in the United States and Europe. And so I'm very much familiar with the peace conference. But I went back home in 2003 after I had not been there for 15 years to see what the situation looked like after I graduated in my environmental field. I was very shocked when I entered Liberia. Least to say that the environmental situation was just quite terrible. Horrible to the worst. And many of you may know that the environment and health, they are intrinsically linked and holistically inseparable. Uh, what contribute to the health problem in Liberia, or perhaps Manor, the Manor River Union, of course, which composed of Liberia, Sierra Leone, Africa, and Guinea, they have, if not identical environmental problems, there are great similarities in their environmental uh, problem. And the health infrastructure in, in Liberia and the Manor River Union country have been challenged before even the Ebola came. Uh, the total death statistics in Liberia, according to the Minister of Health, Dr. Guanagali, is by 72% is contributed as a result of poor environmental condition. 
for the ratio of a doctor to patient is about 1 to 1,400. About 250 certified medical doctors are in Liberia. I'm talking about in two, up to 2003. I don't know where it is now. With those kind of grimy statistics, it tells you a whole lot that there is a need. People are dying in Liberia. When I got in, I heard my colleague talking about, you know, the women giving birth, the mortality rate is just so high. Unfortunately, the situation has not been addressed. So when Ebola come in overwhelming these minor rivers in your country, I no surprise. And it shouldn't be a surprise to many of us who already know the situation. From an environmental perspective, I decided to form an organization called the Liberia Environmental Watch. Later on, it will transition to the Africa Environmental Watch to begin to teach environmental science or environmental awareness in the schools and in the communities. And I did that very successfully. But there was always a roadblock because the government was never receptive to these things when we went there to do them. But now with Steny, I had the resources to do that, resources in terms of my own resources, because I work with the government, so I earned a salary every, you know, every month. And I could use that to go back to library and do whatever I wanted to do, and friends who believed in what I was doing would begin to do that. So we identified two universities, Stella Marie Polytechnic and Tuckman University in Maryland County. There is a Maryland in Liberia. And we developed curriculum on three tracks. Six months for apprenticeship, associate degree, and a bachelor degree. And the reason why we took that route because we believe that the fundamental impetus of addressing environmental issue in Liberia or perhaps in the whole of Africa, it must begin from the grassroots. And we, brought, we begin to even talk about gender involvement in the whole process because we feel in Liberia, when we talk about gender, it refers to women, <laughs> very strangely. But that's how it is defined. And we felt that the women were being left out of the whole process of the environmental movement in Liberia. And so we thought we brought them in because our own philosophy or our culture is the women as the best keeper of the home. If that holds true, then they should be the best keeper of the environment as well. And so based on that phenomenon, we took that approach and we started, we started carrying on. The next thing we faced was the institutional capacity building of the agency itself, which is the Liberia Environmental Protection Agency that was responsible to make sure to regulate all environmental issues. But what was very common, it's not the big companies that were coming in, like Mattel Steel, or Golden Valerium, or BHP Billiton, the mining big companies. They were not much of the problem. Of course, they do have the problem, but they could easily be regulated. But the biggest of the problem with respect to health, environmental health, had to do with sanitation. People were building wells, just digging shallow holes, and consider that a well, and not testing. Well, there's some that are doing a good job, but majority of them were not doing what they, ought to, what they ought to do. And so most of the water that people were drinking from the, from the, from the water, water side was not good, was not purified. They were in the market ground, you go in the market ground, people say the market, they leave the trash. And after two or three days, the trash get decomposed. And when the trash get decomposed, the next thing that happens, they develop vector-borne diseases. And all of that becomes health problem. Malaria that killed about 3,300 children every year in Liberia, it thrives from poor environmental conditions. Part of the water, 
stagnated water body, and garbage. Liberia, in Moreover alone, the population in Moreover is almost half the population of the whole country, almost. Particularly about 1.5 million people. There is only one sanitary landfill in that whole city of the population of 1.5. Now, environmental science, one person with a purchasing capacity can accumulate about between 20 to 35 pounds of garbage a day. So if you multiply that by 1.5 million people, that tells you the amount of ton of garbage you collect a day. And if that garbage is not properly disposed of, it comes back to hunt the resident of the community. And that's exactly that was happening. Even the sanitary landfill that Liberia had before it could even do that, the United Nations even had to get involved because they developed what we call a dump, you know, a dump site. Of course, you and I know a dump site is not a measure to environmental design sanitary landfill, but that's all they had. So when the garbage is piled up and it gets decomposed, the odor, some communities, they have to leave their home at night because of the smell. And that also becomes a problem to their respiratory uh, system as well. And so these lengthening of environmental problems have been in existence for quite some time before, unfortunately, Ebola came about. Ebola just happened to have exacerbated the situation. But the question is, what can we do? That, I think, is the crust of my being here today, is to see how do we find a solution to the problem. Because the people who are suffering and dying every day from this whole situation are the very ones that are very helpless, that cannot do anything for themselves. They are the will and pleasure of the government. But if the government is not giving them the attention that they need, they are just at the mercy of God. So what is it that we can do, our partners, Jipako that have been in Liberia doing a wonderful job, how can we capacitate, put our voice behind these organizations that are making sacrifices to go to Africa and help us? How can we give them the support? We want to take that discussion to the level to see that we have to come up with, with some kind of a mechanism that will work. I mean, talking about good governance in the country itself, because no matter what we do here, if the good governance is not a prime issue of concern, everything here will not work, because everything in Liberia is driven by public policy. Public policy are driven by public opinion. But who are those that bring about the public opinion are the citizens. And so it is important that we deal with this situation on this level to maximize the work of those of our international organizations that go into liberal work. The issue then became, it becomes nurses. We are short of nurses. The government does not have provision to, to kind of entice willing students who want to go into the medical field. Nurses. Other health practitioners, they are not given the incentive that are needed. And I think a whole lot of investment needs to be carried out in that direction. Because if our international friends go there for their, during their sabbatical and do some work and do whatever they can, they want to make sure that they pass on that training to somebody that will continue when they leave. That is not in Liberia. The University of Liberia has only the Diacriotic College that is now completely empty because there's no student. There's no money for them to pay. 
I think the government talked about giving them some scholarship. But lastly, this Ebola situation has exposed some of the weaknesses we have been talking about from the other side of the fence. Other side of the fence means that we are not with the government, but we are with the people. Uh, I just read an article, unfortunately, yesterday in the, in, the, in the newspaper to say that the government, after we have advocated that if a victim, or Ebola victim, is identified and it passed away, that body should be cremated. That's what the medical doctor says, and we, we agree with him. And so there has to be cremation. Cremation and determined from an environmental perspective, cremation is most environmental friendly than determined. Determined has traditional implication. We can talk about that later on. But for the safety of the rest of the people, we have to address the issue from the perspective that it saves lives. Then that is doing cremation. The government today have authorized families who have Ebola victims to bury them traditionally, which I think is sad. Because we're trying to curb or reduce or completely diminished Ebola. And the government is telling the people that, you know, when they when they're ready to die from Ebola, they can request for the body and carry the body and bury them. That is a risky proposition because what happened is from medical from medical studies, we are told that Ebola Viral is transmitted through bodily fluid. And our ritual, in, in, in some part of Liberia, they, we have the Christian, the Muslim, and, you can, and everyone has their own way of burying their dead. They want to go through their traditional ritual, wash them out, take that same water, and, and you know, wipe their face. I mean, that's the way it is. But we have to do something to stop it, because if we continue to do that, that will not solve the problem. You know, Morris, I think you have sort of make, made us come full circle here in terms of, like, how things were before, what, how Liberia was sort of trying to move forward, mm-hmm. Ebola hits, almost as we're, we're back sort of where we're starting. But, I mean, I'd like to be able to open up the, um, let the audience ask you guys some questions so that they can get involved here in this discussion. So please let me open the floor up to anyone here who, who has a... Yes, please. Do you want to stand up right here just so, so that they can hear you? <laughs> okay. I'm too sure for this. <laughs> there you Thank go. you for the presentation and sharing the, the latest up, update about Ebola in Liberia. Um, I have two questions, um, one for Dr. Vu. Um, you mentioned a lot about fear and fear, discriminations and trust. And moving forward, how do you think this kind of social determinant of, of, the, of the issues have been, you know, play a role in, in, our, um, in our development of programs and, you know, moving forward after these cases um, have been, um, you know, handled um, how how this you know there will be change after outbreak. There will be change in social uh, dynamics in in the people, and to to rehabilitate the situations, it needs to be taking care of all of these social issues. And also to Khadija, um, you mentioned about how Ebola cases have you know the treatment uh, of Ebola have kind of um, 
disrupt the, the movement of resources for other cases as well. And how do you think, like, how do you see these, you know, the a big loss of health workers, especially maybe also for midwife and skilled birth attendant, how will it affect the the handle of, of laborers and deliveries in, in, in Liberia, especially usually after after such um, you know big loss of of, of um, big death happens in the country, it, looking at past experience, usually there will be increase of, of pregnancy and labor in that in that areas. And do you think the the country have enough resources to 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 be prepared for that? Or and how do you think maybe traditional birth attendant can play a role in this? Thank you. R- Rup, do you want to take that first one sure. on fear? Sure. Uh, so let me uh, make sure that I understood your question. It's all about the fear among the healthcare workers and uh, what should happen after Ebola. Is that right? Yeah, and also maybe within the community, because you cannot talk about health without talking about how. Yeah, okay. So, uh, you know, the basic reason why people fear is that there is no information, and that was very true about Ebola in West Africa. So people had fear about the disease at the community level. And then, you know, because of lack of knowledge, a lot of misinformation that would start sort of, you know, grilling, and then all of a sudden something new will come up and people will say there is nothing like Ebola, right? Or if you drink this holy water, Ebola will get cured. Or if you go and touch that stone, things would change. Now, the death continued, so the understanding, now they needed more information, so this, the healthcare workers or the community volunteers started making efforts in Liberia so that people, a group of healthcare workers who went into a tribe deep into Guinea were killed. There, were, there are quite a few other incidences where the workers were assaulted by the community. That's not because community wanted to do that, because they did not have enough information. That's one. The same thing started happening with healthcare workers. And on a very, you know, if you look at the way cases started coming up and down, initially they did not know that Ebola is there. When they realize Ebola is there, they become people become heroic. As I, know, I mean, I will, I will, I will, I will think of myself and say, "Oh, I will continue to work, right?" So, but they did not have enough knowledge, skills, and supplies in terms of infection prevention and control. Their understanding about the virus that causes disease was not complete. This is one of the most unforgiving virus. Think of a think of a situation when somebody says, "Don't touch your relative." How can how can you expect me to not to touch them? But this virus is most unforgiving. So what happened was that when many workers started dying, the first response was to not to go and report to work, keep away from them. Okay. Then what happened that some scientists studied and they said, you know what, of those 300 people who got infected in Liberia, more than half of them really got infected in the community. But now they are telling they got infected at Pakistan. So our own knowledge as a scientific community is now getting 
better in terms of what exactly went wrong and maybe next couple of months you will see some more scientific information coming out but it is the knowledge it is the skills it is the attitude and it is the supplies for protective gears and that is something that going to really make sure that people are not afraid of it and they are prepared so it's not to fear but to fight let, let me add to that you know knowledge is power and i mean in two fronts in which japigo has been working on both these fronts is working with the healthcare workers training them up with the appropriate infection prevention skills so they know exactly what to do when to do it how to protect themselves so that they are then confident and feel safe that they can go to work, work safely, work confidently to take care of women and families. The second front, and I think, Adija, you may know about this as well, we worked in the communities. Um, we worked with um, the Muslim community in Liberia. We worked with, uh, we sort of rounded, for lack of a better word, we rounded up people we worked with prior to Ebola on sort of different health programs. We brought them in. We gave them infection prevention and control training, including beauty stylists and barbers who had worked with before, the Muslim community uh, in, in Monrovia, um, and um, I'm trying to think of the third. Oh, and market uh, folks who work in the markets to get the word out, give them the basic infection, infection prevention controls, uh, you know, measures that they needed to take, and use them basically as the messengers for their various and respective communities. And on your question about traditional birth attendants, we brought them in for the same reason, to sort of get them primed on what needed to be done if, in fact, you had to um, stay home and have a baby. How to, I'm remembering a, photo, a photograph of our, our, one of our trainers. Uh, okay, so you're living in some rural part of uh, Liberia. You don't have the gloves you can buy here at the, at the uh, CVS to protect yourself. And they were showing them how to sort of make, um, with garbage bags, how to sort of make sort of, not gloves really, but a way to sort of protect yourself if you found yourself in that situation. Rather than do nothing, you needed to do something as a last resort. So the issue of the community is, is key, and education is key, um, you know. So I think, uh, yes. It may have been obvious, but I'm not clear on it. Deja, I think, is the person you mentioned. The statistic about 50% drop in the birth rate in the hospitals opposed to home. Was that due solely to the fear of contracting people, or was it other factors? So, uh, so it wasn't um, a 50% drop, but I, what I had mentioned was that Prior to Ebola, only 50% of women were delivering in the health facilities, and that actually dropped to probably almost zero. So it was a 100% drop. And part, so part of it was related to women either coming to health facilities and being referred to other places because they were people. There was fear about treating pregnant women, or they were closed, or or the health facility was closed. So either that you know health you know because over half of the health facilities closed down, so either they had nowhere to go. Or they got there and then they were, they were kind of sent there. around until, you know, they either went back home and delivered at home or, um, you know, or didn't survive delivery because they, had, they just had nowhere to go. Um, and then I just want to go back to the second question about um, sort of what's being done 
to help um, improve. So I think, you know, one of the things that Anne mentioned was that the government is really looking at, you know, how do we replace the health workers that were lost and how do we improve, um, you know, our number of health workers. And then working with traditional birth attendants prior to Ebola, you know, Chipaigo was working with traditional birth attendants. Um, and what we were doing was, you know, they, traditional birth attendants already have the trust of the community. So you work with them to use that trust to so that they can convey messages to the pregnant women so they can you know help to ensure that pregnant women are going back to you know are going to facilities for their prenatal care for delivery but also giving them the, the appropriate messages that you know if you cannot get to a facility this is what you can do so we really do um you know the, the traditional birth attendants are key to getting the women back in the facility, making sure that they're safe, and then also working with the government to ensure you know, that there are training programs in place to um, replace some of these health workers or midwives who stopped going to work to make sure that they have you know, what we call refresher training so that you know, if they haven't, you know, if they've been out of work for a period, that their skills are up to date so that they can um, treat the pregnant women. So you know, a lot of this is being worked on now. And another thing that I think um, the United Nations is doing is they are um, putting together safe delivery kits so that women can have these. So if they go to a facility and there's no supplies, they have their kit. And that includes protective equipment for the um, health provider. It includes anything they would need for the delivery. So that's you know something that the government and the United Nations is working together on to making sure that women have the necessary supplies that they need to deliver safely. I have a question for the uh, first presenter. Uh, you said that the virus is uh, in the fruit bat. Is that what you said? Can, can in the fruit, fruit Yeah, bat. in fruit bat, yeah. Okay, can you hear me? I've, I've been yeah. teaching all day, and I'm starting to lose my voice <laughs> yeah. working with children. Uh, can you hear me now? Yeah, I can oh, hear you. Okay. Oh, okay, good. Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. So you said that it was transmitted from the bat to the animal, mm -hmm. and then what? how was it transmitted from the animal to humans? Okay. So from fruit bats, uh, they may directly enter into the human being, or they will enter into... Uh, you know different kinds of monkeys or uh, you know sheep's and goats and um, you know uh, 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 deers and then when these animals which you know when they get sick it's very easy for the tribes bush, live, people living in the bush up you know far away from the mainland to kill them and then when they kill them generally what they do is to they handle them with their bare hands and uh, and I've seen that happening in East Africa also. It's nothing new. You know, it has been going on for ages, I would say. So when they handle this sick animal, they get injured by using you know, big knives and bones. And, you know, and then from that animal, the disease gets you know, transmitted to a first human being. Now that first human being, when it gets sick, the family members, they get into taking care of this sick man or woman. You know. And from there, the, the family members get sick, and then some, one of the family members would die, the surrounding communities will come to attend the funeral. And that really sort of lifts the fire, and then it keeps on going. Good question. You know, I, 
I am a native. My mother had me. Morris, can you use the mic, please? Oh, okay. I am a native. My mother had me in a house, not in a hospital. I lived in Africa for 20 years before I came to the United States. And the whole issue of these bad, the fruit, the bad eating fruit animal that so quote unquote transmitting this viral is, is debatable. And reason being that Africans have lived through the forest for centuries. They've eaten these animals. I have eaten them myself. That is our means of food. But when deforestation started coming in, when people started cutting our forests, taking the logs away, they say the habitat of these animals were destroyed. And so they started going further into the forest. But when this disease came up in Sudan and the Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly Zaire, in 1976, but some people say it was before that time. But when it left, when they entered in Zaire, it subsided in about two to three years. It went away. It went away. They uttered a certain, uttered a certain in, in, in 2013. It surfaced from Central Africa to West Africa, which is Guinea, Sierra Leone. In Liberia, it happened. I am currently working on a research to find out how that happened. We're trying to investigate. So the, the, the whole idea of trying to establish its origination, it requires more research to find out exactly what it is. The doctor is right, because that's what they reported. But those of us that are going deeper and deeper into the research, we begin to understand that that may not exactly be the case. There could be other issues that are prompting this whole thing. But how could a virus that existed some 20 years ago, we ought to certainly leave Central Africa and come into West Africa? And exactly in the Mano River Union country that is currently now driving the driving force of the African economy, which is between 6.4 to 7.5% GDP. If you don't know, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, they have they are, the population within that area is about pretty close to about 30 million people. They're about pretty close to about $300 billion natural resources sitting in those three countries. But what I'm saying here today is Liberia particularly is the third or fourth poorest country in the world. It's not far from Sierra Leone. It's not far from Guinea. <clears throat> Africa's it's a little bit different. So the problem that is facing these countries in Africa is governance, political governance. No matter how much we stretch our hand for help, we will not get the best help that we want because as soon you keep giving until you tire giving and you're no longer there, that poverty will still be there. What do we do? to teach Africans how to fish so that when they leave, we can be able to fish for ourselves. That is the biggest problem we face. And all I'm saying here is the United States, that is the dean of democracy, 
that is spreading democracy all over the world. Should give attention to Liberia is could be the fifty first country of the United States because we were colonized by the United States in eighteen twenty two. The slave, the black slave from here went to Liberia, actually decided from Shebro Island, which is Guinea, which is Sierra Leone, and they moved into Liberia under the American Colonization Society to form Liberia. Liberia gained her independence in eighteen forty seven. America refused to recognize Liberia as an independent country. But that's a different history. But what I'm simply saying here is, let us now, why it is much appreciated that we are not in crisis and we need help. But our problems are bigger than that. Yeah, and that's the understatement, yeah. right? Um, yes. Thank you very much to all three speakers. Your presentations were very good. Um, I have a question not particularly directed to a specific one, maybe to all three. Um, so someone mentioned that the number of cases is project projected to decrease to zero around March or later in Liberia. How does that compare to Sierra Leone and Guinea? And what do you think is the are the major reasons for the turnaround in Liberia? <coughs> Can you repeat that question? Mm -hmm. You know, I think you're referring to what, well, one of the, the two headlines that uh, I read earlier were Liberia's Ebola epidemic could be eliminated by June, researchers say, and the one on the post was about Sierra Leone's president predicting zero Ebola cases by March. I mean, I don't know if the panelists can really speak to either of those specific questions. Um, because uh, th this was really coming off as two news, news stories that I sort of plucked out. Um, and we aren't working in Sierra Leone. Uh, I don't know. But, um, you know, in Liberia, I, I think, I think based, it's an open question, yeah. quite frankly. Um, based on the trends for the past several weeks, uh, we know that, and it's based on the cases reported, right? So we know that the number of cases in Liberia peaked several weeks ago, and now it is slowly going down, continuously. That's number one. But it doesn't mean that it is going to, it has stopped, or it's, we don't know whether it will stop soon. What happened in Liberia a couple of, several weeks ago, they found a new cluster that came up. Okay, so that was also a, a, a cause of concern, but then it was taken care of. In Sierra Leone, there is an intense transmission going on as we talk. Yeah. So we still need to wait and see. It's, it's continuing to peak, and then it is fluctuating. Say one day, one week it is down, one week it is up. So the so the public health, you know, you know, people out there on the field, they are not really able to make any, you know, solid prediction in terms of when it is going to start you know, going Coming down. down. What I un unmentioned about zero case by March, right? It's a, it's a, it, it came from the... The president of Sierra yeah, Leone, who case, probably has a, a vested interest so, in so, so saying that the cases are coming statement. down by March. Yeah, it's a very solid political statement <laughs> to maintain the confidence of the people in the government as well as into the system. But we need to see what happens on March last day. Huh? So, 
it has to be taken in the perspective you know think who is telling mm-hmm. And, and and then and then and then see what has happened and then make your own judgment we have time for like maybe one more question um, so yes please oh I too okay sorry I didn't see um, go ahead thank you for this can you hear me yeah for this insightful um, discussion on Ebola I think it's been well um, received um, my question is, um, I mean, we talk about government support and the lack thereof prior to this um, outbreak and then currently. Um, Morris, you had indicated that you um, had helped to develop some uh, environmental programs. Mm-hmm. And what kind of support currently is the government of Liberia giving to those individuals who are coming out of the universities with these degrees? Um, do they have job prospects? I mean, are they well-received in the government or is it still resistance and basically they don't really have any place to utilize their um, the knowledge and what they gained going through the university getting this um, education. Thank you. Um, actually the government offer little or nothing. Let me put it that way precisely. And I'm sitting, sitting, sitting before you here. I have I've traveled to Liberia twice every year. I should have been in Liberia now. I was there in 2013. I came back December 2013. I was just about to go back when Ebola break up in 2014. We have developed, we brought the entire Environmental Protection Agency, the agency that is responsible for all of the environmental regulation in the country. We brought them over here for capacity building. We interacted with the US EPA. We interacted with uh, USAID. We interacted with uh, the National Council for Science and Environment. We interacted with the Global Environmental Facilities or subsidiary of the World Bank. And this international institution came together to see how we can capacitate the EPA of Liberia. Now, the EPA of Liberia has an employment of 150 personnel. Of that 150 personnel, 90% are less than a high school graduate. So an entity of that magnitude with so much responsibility, a technical institution for that matter, if it has 90% of its employees that are supposed to be technical people, less than high school graduate, that tells you a whole lot. If the agency that has that much employee for payroll for maintenance, for vehicles, and for other things, and get the budget from the national legislature of only $850,000, that tells you a whole lot. And we have made the case. I have met the president myself, and I make the case to her. Now, Madam President, we cannot succeed. We cannot succeed in our health infrastructure. We cannot succeed in our social capacity building. We cannot succeed in a, whole, in a whole lot of other things if the issue of the environment are not being placed in the rightful place because the government itself is not even articulating for the EPA that it, it, it created. It, it is an autonomous agency. And by definition, in the Liberian statute, an autonomous agency has a responsibility to raise its own money, to find people who violate. One example, a firestorm. Firestone been in Liberia for, from 1926 
All the tires perhaps that you're driving on your, on, your, on your car, one of them may be the raw material might be coming from Liberia, but not even a rubber band that is produced in Liberia. And the government has not done anything about that. And so are the other companies. So in essence, in short, what I'm simply telling you, the government is not supporting these programs. It's a challenge. It is unfortunate, but that is the situation. And this is why when Ebola hit, it hit Liberia so hard that more people are dying. Over 75% of the or most of the rural area, there's no road network. So when somebody is, is sick all the way in Banjo, you can't get there with car. Somebody sick in the car from the village, it took the people nine hours to get there. By the time they got there, the person was dead. Yeah. They aren't rural network. Let's fix the fact. That is the reality. I'm not here to sugarcoat. I'll be honest, because I am hurting. Because this is where I come from. So if the government is not doing what they're supposed to do, we should let them know that they're not doing what they're supposed to be. Or there should be some caveat that will control money that goes into the country that let it be used only by the NGO and the government should stay out of it. So this is your opportunity, Morris, to yeah. write, get, get involved with your congressman and tell him how you really <laughs> exactly. feel. Exactly. Right? Exactly. I, don't, I don't know how, fair, how you're going to fare under the, the incoming Republican Congress, but give it, give it your go. I will find a okay. friend. I will find a friend. <laughs> um, yes, the gentleman there on the couch. And I, that'll be our last question because it's, uh, it's almost 8 o'clock. So. Well, I really had... Uh, two quick questions that were more uh, sort of factual. I think the um, figure given in the beginning was that about 20,000 people had contracted Ebola during this epidemic. And I think that was in the three countries combined. Yeah. Um, just so we can have an idea about the impact of that. Um, what's the total population of the three countries combined? Uh, Liberia population is 4.7. is 6. Guinea is 12. Yes, Guinea so, is 11. So that would be 22 million total. No, it's yeah. about 12, 11, 12 no, and 4. 12, and 6, yeah. yeah, 22. He's right. Yeah. Yeah. 22 million total. Mm -hmm. And 20,000 people contracted Ebola. That's about 1%. So, yeah, that, if we were talking about the United States and the same proportion of the population contracted a disease, we would be talking about millions. I guess, what? Millions? Yeah, mm -hmm. that's true. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and then I had a second question um, um, concerning um, the environment. As I, under as I uh, understand it, um, one of the reasons that people think um, this outbro uh, outbreak of Ebola occurred at this time was because of deforestation in I don't know whether it was, uh, I think it was Guinea that they were referring to, um, where trees have been cut, um, many, and um, the fruit bats had gone to trees that were actually left, mm -hmm. that were closer 
to villages mm -hmm. in some mm -hmm. cases. Mm -hmm. And so um, there was more contact between the people and the fruit bats and there was more possibility for the transmission of the disease from the fruit bats to people. And um, is that true? I, that was my understanding, but maybe... Well, that's, that's, that's exactly what the science out there is telling us. But there are very there are other researchers that are coming with different ideas. And I just gave the scenario not too long ago regarding people that live in this forest for, for centuries. And the whole idea of fruit eating bat, I ate monkey myself. I ate the bat they're talking about myself. I'm still here, you know. But the possibility, who is it because of climate change? There's a lot of transformation going on. It could possibly be. I'm not arguing that it's not possible. But there are, there are enough evidence to show that. There are not enough evidence to show that. If there's deforestation going on in, in Liberia, there's deforestation going on in Guinea, you know, but the deforestation has been going on for the past 25, 30, 40 years. So what is exactly this whole thing is all about? There is the Ebola or strain that happened in Reston, right there in Virginia, yeah. where they brought these monkey from Manila, Philippines, and they were testing them, and something went wrong. So there's so many things, so many connections. But unless you can sit down and begin to do the research and putting the, and putting the data together, you will know exactly what, is, what this whole thing originated from. But granted that is the case, now we want to find, the key, to find some way to help those who are dying from the Ebola. And the statistics that the World Health Organization gave him right there, those statistics are questionable. Because like I said earlier, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea, these are the poorest countries in the world. Some of them. And most of the roads, there are no road networks. How is, how is it that they WHO is getting there to get the statistics. The people have no telephone, they have no network. So how do they get to know that the people that are dying, there are how many of them? They don't know. They just give us projection. That's what they're doing. Let's be realistic. You know, there could be more. The last time I read, there were over 450,000 people, I mean 4,500 people that died from Liberia. I read the other statistics that said 2,300, 2,900. You know, so this number, they're playing with the number, and they're playing with them for political reasons. So that the, the donors company can say, yeah, this, these people are making progress, get them some money, get them the money, they eat it. They don't, they, don't, they, don't, they don't help the people that are suffering. And this thing been going on, it's been going on from years, from years, from years to years, and we still support these political leaders that continue to take away a daily meal from the people. Well, I think we should end it on that note, perhaps, although I'd like to think more positively about um, all the efforts that are being made uh, to try and contain the spread of Ebola, to ensure that health workers are safe and protected in the work that they do, and the end result there will be that women and children uh, and their families are not dying but surviving. I mean, we, we had a story, I, I was working on a story uh, just yesterday of a doctor in um, Guinea uh, who 
he candidly admits for lack of using basic infection prevention, caught the virus um, in, tre- in treating a pregnant woman whom they didn't know uh, initially was had Ebola. Uh, lucky for him, he survived. So he's a survivor. He's working now back um, in the healthcare um, facilities as a trainer to help train other health workers in the kinds of infection prevention that he didn't measures he didn't take so that they themselves can be protected to deliver the kind of care that women and families need. And I think that's sort of the thing hopefully we can be left with in terms of moving forward on, on, uh, on how to think about what's happening there. Anyway, thank you, everybody, for coming. Very nice to see you here. And thank you um, to Judy and the Pratt for hosting us on, this, uh, on a, what is a little bit out of their comfort zone, maybe, but we, are, we were happy to be here. So thank you so much. <laughs>